Imagine you and your significant other are spinning the miles away on a rural Texas highway surrounded by nothing but desert and stars. Sam Cook serenades you through the night with You Send Me, but then he cuts out. So do the lights, and your convertible rolls to a stop as the engine dies. You notice a light in the road ahead, an emergency vehicle maybe, but you've never seen blue-green lights before. You're able to make out an egg-shaped craft, but just then it turns a red so bright you have to look away. You hear what sounds like thunder, and the craft shoots away, accelerating faster than anything you've ever seen. Sam Cook snaps you out of your trance, and your car fires up on its own. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. There are things that go bump in the night, and we are the ones who bump back. Somewhere in the cosmos, perhaps, intelligent life may be watching these lights of ours, aware of what they mean. Or do our lights wander a lifeless cosmos? I couldn't help but one point in my discussions with General Secretary Gorbachev. I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held. If suddenly there was a threat to this world, from another planet outside in the universe. Well, I don't suppose we can wait for some alien race to come down and threaten us, but I think that between us, we can bring about that realization. Hello, Crypt Keepers. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of Cryptique. I'm glad to be here with my co-pilot on this journey through the cosmos, Ryan. How are you, Ryan? Tell us how your bar is doing. Tell us a little bit about it. It is doing uh, fairly well, I want to say. It's very um, inconsistent and stressful, and it's weird to have it not in my control anymore. I have to hope that it's the field of dreams. I built it. Now they have to come. Mm-hmm. We are getting business, but it's there are certain days where it's like there's nobody in. Why is there nobody in? Or there's like 30 people here now. Why? I <laughs> the part of my mind. Yeah, exactly. The part of my mind, you know, that's left over from grad school and studying statistics and marketing. Where it wants to know, like, okay, nobody came in right when we opened yesterday, but today, like a dozen people walked in. Why? Mm-hmm. Yesterday it was all college students. Today it's all like 40 up why yeah so but no we're doing well do you have a facebook page or anything they can check out we do the facebook page is you know facebook.com slash loading barcade the instagram is loading bar evil e-v-i-l-l-e and the twitter is also loading barcade there's a lot of loading bar stuff out there it's hard to get a consistent uh handle unfortunately I hear you. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So if you're in the St. Louis metro area, definitely go out there, get a few drinks. You can talk to your cryptic host and have a great time. So back so back to cryptic. 
we're on the hunt for new subscribers. Please, if you haven't done so already, subscribe, like, follow, all that good stuff. If you like the show, leave us a review. If you hate the show, don't leave us a review. But tonight's show is out of this world. What are we talking about tonight? Tonight we are talking about Leveland UFO case. I'm just realizing I'm not sure I've ever actually heard it out loud before. The Leveland UFO case occurred uh, on November 2nd through the 3rd of 1957 in and around the small town of Leveland, Texas. Leveland, which in 1957 had a population of about 10,000, is located west of Lubbock on the flat prairie of the Texas South Plains. This case is considered by ufologists to be one of the most impressive in UFO history, mainly because of the large number of witnesses involved over a relatively short period of time. However, both the U.S. Air Force and UFO skeptics have described the incident as being caused by either ball lightning or a severe electrical storm. So let's get right to the bottom of it, shall we? Before the reports began in Loveland, in Canadian, Texas, near Amarillo, a driver reported seeing a submarine-shaped object that was about 50 feet long. He said the object was red and white and reported seeing a small humanoid creature near the craft. As he approached, his headlights failed. Around 8 p.m., Odell Eccles, owner of KCLV in Clovis, New Mexico, reported seeing an unknown, glowing object flying rapidly towards Loveland, Texas. Near Midland, Texas, the Ground Observers Corps, a civilian-led group tasked with watching the sky before decent radar covered all U.S. airspace, logged several reports of a large bluish object flying at a low altitude in the direction of Loveland. Just before the Loveland reports began, Calvin Harris and Sandy McKean, tower operators at the Amarillo Airport, saw a bluish object moving across the sky. McKean said he'd never seen anything so spectacular. On the evening of November 2, 1957, two immigrant farm workers, Pedro Saucedo and Joe Salas, called the Loveland Police Department to report a UFO sighting. Saucedo told police officer A.J. Fowler, who was working the night desk at the police station, that they had been driving four miles west of Loveland when they saw a blue flash of light near the road. They claimed their truck's engine died and a rocket-shaped object rose up and approached the truck. According to Saucedo, quote, I jumped out of the truck and hit the dirt because I was afraid. I called to Joe, but he didn't get out. Joe sat mesmerized and said the object switched from blue to a red so bright he couldn't look directly at it. The thing passed directly over my truck with a great sound and rush of wind. It sounded like thunder and my truck rocked from the flash. I felt a lot of heat." End quote. As the object moved away, the truck's engine restarted on its own and worked normally. The witnesses estimated the total time of the encounter is three to four minutes. Believing the story to be a joke, Officer Fowler ignored it. So, I just want to point out, this does seem to be like a pretty common thing in anything paranormal. People just assuming it's a joke or a crank or whatever. Mm -hmm. I kind of wonder if the prevalence of UFO reports during the 50s up through the 80s was, you know, partially because people were taking things seriously because of the Cold War. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, there there might be stuff going on. We should probably pay attention, even if we think it's something bizarre, like a UFO. I mean, the UFO is just an unidentified flying object, so it could be something Soviet or whatever else. But And it's interesting that there was a ground core. I had not heard of that 
before I researched this case where people, you know, were actually tasked with watching, mm-hmm. presumably for, you know, a Cold War type craft or attack. So that was very right. interesting. Yeah, definitely. So Fowler laughed it off as a UFO hoax, despite later admitting that the man seemed very excited. He assumed the men were drunk. Alcohol comes up in a lot of paranormal stories, and for some reason, people buy into the theory that when people drink, sometimes they have alien encounters or see Bigfoot or ghosts, as though the witnesses somehow had an insane psychedelic experience from a few natty lights. Yeah, this is this is one of those things. I, I blame specifically cartoons for this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of cartoons. I think Pinocchio had scenes like this. The Hanna-Barbera cartoons had stuff like this. It was always this thing of like a bizarre thing would happen and then whoever witnessed it would just look in shock and then dump out whatever they were drinking. Yeah. Or they would look look down at their beer or their coffee or whatever like what am I, you know. Yeah, I used to drink all the time and I've never had any kind of experience with yeah. anything when I wasn't completely sober. So it's it's just an interesting observation. Yeah, you'll virtually never find anybody who had uh, any kind of, like, psychedelic experience from alcohol. That's not what it does. Not what alcohol does. Alcohol isn't psychoactive, as far as I'm aware. It's... Well, I mean, unless they were drinking moonshine, then it's most likely not a hallucination. Right, right. An hour later, motorist Jim Wheeler... Great name for a motorist. Like he knew the role he was playing. Reported a brilliantly lit egg-shaped object about 200 feet long was sitting in the road four miles east of Levelin blocking his path. He told NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, investigator James A. Lee that the object cast a glare over the area. As he approached the object, his lights dimmed and his vehicle died, and as he got out of his car, the object took off and its lights went out. As it moved away, Wheeler's car restarted and worked normally. Air Force Technical Sergeant Harold D. Wright and his family were driving along Texas Farm Road 1073 near shallow water at about the same time as Sacedo had his experience. In part of his statement to the Air Force, he wrote, My wife, my two children, and myself departed my father's home in the vicinity of Anton, Texas. My wife and I observed occasional lightning and at the same time static on our radio. I turned south at Shallow Water, Texas, and just a few minutes later, this bolt of lightning occurred to our southwest. At the time, my radio and lights went out for about three seconds and then came back on. My wife and I remarked that it was a strong bolt of lightning to knock our lights and radio out. End quote. But does this support or refute the experiences of the other witnesses? Being that it came from an active Air Force serviceman, could it be that he was strongly encouraged to provide the statement that regular lightning caused his car to malfunction? At 12.05 a.m. on November 3rd, a Texas Tech University student named Newell Wright was surprised when driving 10 miles east of Leveland, his, quote, car engine began to sputter, the ammeter on the dash jumped to discharge and then back to normal, and the motor started cutting out like it was out of gas. The car rolled to a stop, then the headlights dimmed and several seconds later went out, end quote. When he got out to check on the problem, he saw a 75 to 100 foot long egg-shaped object sitting in the road. It took off and his engine started running again. 
At 12.15 a.m., Officer Fowler received another call, this time from a farmer named Frank Williams, who claimed he had encountered a brightly glowing object sitting in the road, and as his car approached it, his lights went out and his motor stopped. The object flew away, and his car's lights and motor started working normally again. So there's a lot of really consistent experiences here from a lot of different people being reported independently of each other. The thing that concerns me a little bit is the difference in sizes and speed, but I think we can kind of chalk that up to, hey, I've never seen a 200-foot-long egg-shaped object, so you know I'm just giving my best estimation. But I think that the consistently observable facts are all similar in these cases, if not identical. Right, and some objects, it's... I mean, if you're on, like, planes flatland it might be tough to judge size without anything to compare it against true you know you could say it's oh it's whatever 15 20 feet tall if you have like a stoplight or something in the background but if it's just one of those things where it's sitting in the middle of a road and all you have are the lanes or you just have it sitting off to the side somewhere yeah it could be really difficult to estimate an accurate size Ronald Martin called police at 12.45 a.m. and claimed he saw a red egg-shaped object sitting in the middle of the road about four miles east of Loveland. As he got within a quarter mile of the object, his lights dimmed and his engine died. The lights on the object were now blue-green and the object lifted off swiftly and silently when he exited his vehicle. But the NICAP report stated that Martin didn't originally say anything about the electromagnetic effects until the next day, so there's a little conflicting information. Officers were busy laughing this off as an elaborate practical joke when Jesse or James, depending on the source, last name Long, reported that he had encountered an unknown object as well. At 1.15 a.m., Mr. Long reported that he had come upon an egg-shaped object glowing red sitting in the middle of the road northwest of Loveland. His car died and his lights went out, but he got out and walked toward the object. He reported that it took off with a tremendous burst of speed and his vehicle once again became functional. They both reported seeing a brightly lit object sitting in the road in front of them, and they also claimed that their engines and headlights died until the object flew away. By this time, several Loveland police officers were investigating the reports. Among them was Sheriff Weir Clem, who saw a brilliant red object moving across the sky at 1.30 in the morning. Deputy Sheriff Patrick McCullough was with Clem, who claimed they couldn't get very close to the object. At least, that's what they later told an Air Force investigator. But we'll get back to Sheriff Weir Clem a little later. About that same time, two highway patrol officers and Constable Lloyd Bolin saw the UFO in the distance. They reported a red glow coming from the object in the distance. At 1.45 a.m., Loveland's fire chief, Ray Jones, also saw an object and his vehicle's lights and engines sputtered. The reports apparently ended soon after. During the night of November 2nd to 3rd, the Loveland Police Department received a total of 15 UFO-related reports and Officer Fowler noted that, quote, everybody who called was very excited. It was enough to spark a Project Blue Book investigation, which we'll cover in just a minute. Hey, my name is Ryan. And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. 
Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general, so why not share it? The objective of Movie Howl is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. Hey, what's up, Crypt Keepers? Are you enjoying the show? If you haven't already, I suggest taking my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil, for a test drive. Exploring Evil focuses on lesser-known serial killers, occult murders, and murders with a paranormal twist, so it should be right up your alley. The Magdalena Soli episode features a prostitute who convinced a Mexican village she was a goddess. She presented with psychosis, religious delusions, delusions of grandeur, sexual perversions, sadism, incest, fetishism, vampirism, and pedophilia. You don't want to miss that one. In the Indian Blood Farm, we cover a case where a man had an outbuilding he was keeping the downtrodden. He kept them weak by continuously draining blood to sell to the local hospitals who were running on short supply. But one man escaped and told the world what was really happening. How about the Body Snatchers episode where corpses had their body parts replaced with PVC pipes so they could be sold for a profit? In the Antron Singleton case, we cover a rapper who killed and ate pieces of a woman. There's always something new and interesting to listen to and a lot of twists and turns. So check out Exploring Evil everywhere you find Cryptique. Welcome back to Cryptique. The Leveland sightings received national publicity and were soon investigated by Project Blue Book. Starting in 1947 as Project Sign, Project Blue Book was the official U.S. Air Force research group assigned to investigate UFO reports. Air Force Sergeant Norman P. Barth was sent to Leveland and spent seven hours in the city investigating the incident. You heard that right. Seven whole hours on a sighting that sparked 15 police reports. Sacedo provided a written statement to the investigator, which we will read here the way it's written directly from the quote, so please excuse the strange grammar and tenses. To whom it may concern, on the night of November 2nd, 1957, I was traveling west and north on Route 116 driving my truck. At about four miles out of Leveland, I saw a blue flame to my right front, then I thought it was lightning. But when this object had reached to my position, it was different because it put my motor out and my lights. Then I stopped, got out, and took a look, but it was so rapid and quite some heat that I had to hit the ground. It also had three colors, yellow and white, and it looked like a torpedo, about 200 feet long, moving about 600 to 800 miles an hour." End quote. So 
this thing was flashing blue, yellow, white. It was moving incredibly fast. It was a huge object, and it was producing so much heat that it put this guy on the ground, essentially, right? Correct. 200 foot long, 600 to 800 miles an hour. But again, you know, estimates are difficult. And I couldn't tell you if something was going, you know, 400 miles an hour or 800 miles an hour. It would be very difficult to make that distinction, I think, just because it's, yeah. it's so fast. Yeah, unless you were really trained on that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure a Boeing or Airbus person could like watch a plane go by and be like oh this is probably like i know what one of our planes looks like right and it goes this fast that looks twice as fast so yeah i mean you often see passenger airlines and they're so big and so far away that they don't look like they're going fast at all they almost just look Mm -hmm. like they're kind of floating or gliding investigator barth interviewed wright who added that he just sat and stared at the object for five minutes which would effectively exclude ball lightning Of course, Wright waited to make his report until the following day, leading Barth to ponder if Wright had made false claims after all of the publicity. But Barth gave Wright a usually reliable rating in his interview and noted that he seemed sincere. On the other hand, Wright may have waited to report his incident because he didn't want to be called crazy, but felt comfortable knowing he was one of many who had experienced it that night. After interviewing three of the eyewitnesses, Sesedo, Wheeler, and Wright, and after learning that thunderstorms were present in the area earlier in the day, Air Force investigator Barth concluded that a severe electrical storm, most probably ball lightning or St. Elmo's fire, was the major cause for the sightings and reported auto failures. He contradicted himself a bit when he concluded that a recently replaced rotor in Sesedo's truck had been the reason it died and the lights went out, although this wouldn't explain why the truck restarted when the object flew away. Barth gave Sesedo a low reliability rating as a witness. He wrote in his Project Blue Book report, and we're paraphrasing, Sesedo appeared to be redacted. He stated his occupation was a barber, however, the sheriff stated that Sesedo was a part-time farm laborer, dishwasher, barber, etc. Sesedo had no concept of direction and was conflicting in his answers. End quote. But what was redacted? We can only speculate. Stupid, drunk, high truthful, knowledgeable, shaken? What adjective was redacted, and why? On the flip side, others described Sesedo as a combat veteran and gave him the benefit of the doubt based on his service and experience in combat situations. An Air Force report revealed that a local unnamed farmer told Barth, quote, While driving north about seven miles north of Sundown, Texas, I saw a light about the size of a basketball about 200 feet off the ground traveling from east to west, a bright red light giving off a glow. An object above seemed to hold up the light on a cable or hose appearing between the light and the balloon object above it. It continued swinging north to south three or four minutes by then at a fast rate of speed. It went up into the clouds and disappeared and the lights went out, end quote. When he states the lights went out, we presume he's talking about the lights on the UFO, not his vehicle. Remember the conflicting reports of Ronald Martin? You'd think the Air Force would use this to further their case, but Bart's investigation was rudimentary at best and missed this report entirely. According to UFO historian Curtis Peebles, the Air Force found only three persons who had witnessed the blue light. There was no uniform description of the object. Additionally, Project Blue Book believed that Sesedo's account could not be relied upon. He had only a grade school education and had no concept of direction and was conflicting in his answers. 
In view of the stormy weather conditions and electrical phenomena such as ball lightning or St. Elmo's fire seem to be the most probable cause. The engine failures mentioned by the eyewitnesses were blamed on wet electrical circuits. But would the truck restart so quickly if the distributor had gotten wet? It seems like if your car dies from the distributor getting wet, it would take more than a couple minutes for it to dry out on its own. And if Cesado is telling the truth, the truck wouldn't just fire up on its own, it would have to be restarted. Further adding to the controversy, Donald Menzel and Ernest Tavez's book, The UFO Enigma, reported that Cesado restarted his truck and drove to the police station to report the sighting. In the interview of Cesado for the book, it is implied that he restarted his truck, and this is the only source I could find that stated that Cesado restarted the truck. Donald H. Menzel, an astronomer at Harvard University and a prominent UFO skeptic, agreed with the Air Force explanation. Quote, Members of civilian saucer groups complained that, since the Air Force investigator had spent only seven hours in the area, he had obviously not taken the problem seriously and could not have found the correct solution. Even 70 hours of labor, however, could not have produced a clearer picture. The evidence leads to an overwhelming probability. The fiery, unknown, and level end was ball lightning. End quote. Menzel continued that in Leveland on the night of November 2nd, conditions were ideal for the formation of ball lightning. For several days, the area had been experiencing freak weather, and on the night in question had been visited by rain, thunderstorms, and lightning. Menzel admitted that since ball lightning is short-lived and cannot be preserved as tangible evidence, its appearance on the night of November 2nd can never be absolutely proved. However, he also argued that only the saucer proponents could have converted so trivial a series of events, a few stalled automobiles, balls of flame in the sky at the end of the thunderstorm, into a national mystery. However, an overwhelming majority of sources, including the eyewitnesses, report that bad weather had already ceased by the time of the first sighting. The thing that bothers me about this case and most cases involving topics we cover is that the opposition to it being a UFO or haunting or whatever is so smug and dismissive. A lot of scientists, it seems, believe they have it all figured out to the point that they dismiss any evidence that goes against their theory. When I was a kid, I was taught that dinosaurs were all lizards. Terrible lizards, they said. Well, now half of them have feathers and they're more likely avian ancestors, but you get the point. Science is always changing, and it should be. A side note, ball lightning had never even been photographed in 1957, so it's likely that the smug astronomer had never even seen ball lightning. I live in the show me state, but if I did an investigation of any sort, the first thing I would do is interview every single witness I could possibly find. This simply wasn't done, but interviewing witnesses is Investigation 101. Detectives go to great lengths to track down witnesses. They set up tip lines, and what's the catchphrase? If you may have seen something, no matter how trivial, report it. It could break the case. Unless, of course, you don't want reports that don't fit your narrative. Two ufologists, James E. McDonald and J. Allen Hynek, disputed the Air Force ball lightning slash electrical storm explanation. Both men argued that there was no electrical storm in the area when the sightings occurred. In testimony before a committee of the U.S. House of Representatives in 1968, McDonald said that, quote, one famous UFO case was at Loveland, Texas. Ten vehicles were stopped within a short area, all independently in a two-hour period. There was no lightning or thunderstorm and only a trace of rain. Heineck wrote that 
As the person responsible for the tracking of the new Soviet satellite Sputnik, I was on virtual around-the-clock duty and was unable to give it any attention whatsoever. I'm not proud today that I hastily concurred with the Air Force's evaluation as ball lightning on the basis of information that an electrical storm had been in progress in the Loveland area at the time. This was shown not to be the case. Observers reported overcast and mist, but no lightning. Heineck also noted that, quote, had I given it any thought whatsoever, I would have soon recognized the absence of any evidence that ball lightning can stop cars and put out headlights. Ufologists have also argued that the Air Force investigator did not interview nine of the 15 witnesses, nor were they mentioned in Blue Book's final report on the incident. But what really happened with Sheriff Clem? Subsequent interviews with friends and relatives of Clem bring light to the things he may not have reported. As fate would have it, a man from Roswell was investigating the case. His name? Donald Burleson, and he wrote an article for the Roswell Daily Press in which he interviewed the sheriff's daughter in 2002. She claimed her father told her he tried to drive close to the object, but his car and lights died. Furthermore, she claims, the sheriff was called out to a ranch to the northeast to investigate a ring-shaped burn pattern on the ground. Burleson also interviewed a witness from 1957 named Carolyn Reno who said, as a child, her father took her to see the burn pattern at the friend's ranch. Independent of Clem's daughter, Reno identified the same ranch. Richard Ray, a reporter for Fox Channel 4 in Dallas-Fort Worth, spoke with Clem's widow. She stated, quote, Well, he just said he'd seen a thing that lit down in the pasture with lights and all. It come down and it went back up as fast as it come down. End quote. So why didn't Clem share this with investigator Barth from Project Blue Book? Clem's daughter said, quote, The Air Force visited him after his sightings and advised him to drop it and forget that he'd ever seen anything. Air Force investigation conclusion. Ball lightning and moisture and maybe some beer. What do you think? I think they're giving beer a bad name. <laughs> or a good name. <laughs> I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Joe Rogan might start drinking more beer now. There you go. Witnesses. Many firsthand accounts by somewhat credible to very credible witnesses, including several law enforcement officers, as well as a vague experience by an Air Force technical sergeant. If Barth didn't interview you to the Air Force, you didn't exist. Although they had no knowledge of other witnesses or reports, they all reported the same occurrence. Physical evidence on the ranch in the form of a burn pattern. Physical evidence as far as checking the vehicles for damage to the vehicles that would cause them to malfunction. But we'll never know because it happened 65 years ago. And the Air Force, whose 2022 budget is over $200 billion, sent a laughable investigator. Or was he an agent of disinformation? They should have sent Keith Morrison. He would have gotten to the bottom of it. Shit, Shaggy and Scooby may have done a better job. Final thoughts? Gun to your head, UFO or ball lightning? <sighs> okay, gun to my head, not ball lightning. Two guns to my head, alien invasion. There you go. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the descriptions and the colors and the, you know, uh, Sacedo talking about heat and other people not describing the same thing the cars restarting on their own you know the the range of people and kind of locations and what was going on and it it almost seems like 
uh, what I would imagine it would be like for sea life to experience like marine biologists diving down in some kind of craft. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I was just traveling along on my own and all of a sudden this thing appeared. You know, I'm, I'm thinking this is a series of objects that came mm-hmm. and kind of were checking us out and maybe testing something that disables our vehicle, something like that. As Almost like just, their Mars rover kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that they would all look kind of similar because they're all designed to do the same thing. I mean, most cars today look pretty similar. Right. Despite some of the like few little styling cues because nowadays there's so many safety and aerodynamic restrictions that we have to adhere to. You can't have cars that look particularly unique. So if you're designing something that can travel, you know, however far in whatever manner it may be that they look kind of similar. So this might be, you know, 10 of these things or 15 of these things encountering all these different people as opposed to one that's just jumping around. So in summation, many encounters along with many diverse witnesses, including law enforcement and air tower observers. The stories were all very similar and all seemed to corroborate each other. A paltry seven hour investigation by an inept investigator for the US Air Force There's a theory that says, and I'm paraphrasing, there's no need to inject malice when sheer stupidity will suffice. I don't see that here. What I see is a cover-up. And through research, I found that ball lightning is kind of a go-to when anyone suggests a UFO. You can YouTube ball lightning and see that it's an incredible phenomenon, beautiful and deadly. It's amazing and I can see how it would confuse someone who was unaware of it. However, I don't think ball lightning is responsible for 15 people having the same experience of an egg-shaped or torpedo-shaped craft that one person described as having a humanoid figure standing next to it. Odds are, that humanoid would be dead and could have been found had an actual investigation taken place. I see malice here. Investigator Barth most likely didn't get to his position by being an idiot, but he did an idiot's job of investigating in this case. My final take is cover-up. Maybe it wasn't multiple alien spacecraft visiting from another galaxy, or maybe it was. Maybe it was a U.S. craft doing testing, or a Soviet craft, though that's also highly unlikely. Maybe it was a U.S. weapon being tested. If it had all happened at one place at one time, would this investigation have turned out different? Let us know what you think. That's all we've got on the Loveland UFO incident. What a great story, right? Don't forget to tell a friend, maybe a non-believer, a skeptic. You may help someone wake up. Subscribe, please, Crypt Keepers. It'll just take a second. Check out Movie Hound Exploring Evil, and we'll catch you on the flip side. The truth is out there. Good night. Until next week, Crypt Keepers.
captain has turned off the no smoking sign.